This podcast is brought to you in part by Sing and Dog Double Read Supply. Sing and Dog Double Reads is an online double read shop and one of the largest suppliers of high quality and affordable professional and student reads for oboe and bassoon in the USA. Please visit www.singandog.com to see all of their products. That's S-I-N-G-I-N-D-O-G.com. Dedicated to providing excellent handmade oboe and bassoon reads to discriminating double reed players of all ages and abilities, Double or Nothing Reads has recently expanded to sell double reed tools and supplies, gift items, and more. This includes knives, knife blades, thread, staples, cane, bags, and resources for students. As authorized Fox and Yamaha dealers, they offer an extensive range of oboes and bassoons for all levels. In addition, they sell quality used instruments on consignment. If you're looking for private oboe lessons but can't find anyone nearby, Double or Nothing Reads offers oboe lessons via Skype. Visit doubleornothingreads.com for good quality and affordable readmaking supplies and accessories, lessons, instruments, and much more. That's doubleornothingreads.com. Hi, I'm Galid Kaunitz. And I'm Jackie Wilson. And you're listening to Double Read Dish. A podcast for oboists, bassoonists, and the people who love them. everybody, welcome to episode 11 of Double Read Dish. Galit, how's it going? It's going great, Jackie. How are you? I'm doing okay. It's the last couple of weeks of the semester, um, which are crazy enough, but my puppy, well, he's not a puppy anymore. He's my puppy, buddy. He'll always be a puppy, Jackie. Exactly. Um, buddy, who the listeners have heard about before, is actually having a little bit of health trouble, which you know, it's a bummer, but we're going to be okay. But it's a lot of juggling medication schedule with teaching schedule and driving back and forth three or four times a day. And so I'm glad I only have two weeks of that to juggle. But um, yeah, it's all going to be good and surprisingly still pretty galvanized for this point in the semester. How about you? Oh, I'm good. We are, uh, we have one and a half weeks left <laughs> of class, and I'm just really looking forward to summer. I know the students are over it. <laughs> it's, you know, it's a really hard time because, I don't know, I don't know about you, but I always feel like fall goes by really, really quickly, and spring just kind of slows to a grinding halt by this time. <laughs> so, yeah, but we're good. Everything's good, and I I hope Buddy gets better soon. Well, do you have any fun plans for the summer? I do. I am planning a recital for the fall. Um, and I'm really excited about this recital because before I was, when I was planning recitals, I'd be like, okay, well, I think I should do like a diverse array of pieces. And you kind of like you do in school where you're like, okay, well, I need a representative from all the time periods. And But this time I'm doing a recital that's really special to me. And um, there is kind of an Indian and Jewish theme all the way through, which is really exciting for me because I'm, you know, half Indian and I'm Jewish. So it's like I'm I'm 
going to play pieces by um, Simon Sargon and our good friend Dan Schwartz, who wrote this amazing English horn and electronics piece. And uh, a composer I just learned about named Rena Esmail, um, who's doing amazing things um, all over the world, really, but she's based out in L.A. And uh, a sonata by Srul Glick, which I'm trying to get the music for. Um, but it's going to be a really exciting. Oh, and Jenny Brandon also. Um, and, yeah, the three desert pieces um, kind of going in with the Jewish theme. You get it? Mm. <laughs> Oh, my God, that's awesome. I love it. <laughs> but, yeah, I'm really excited because it really hits close to my heart, you know, all of these different composers. It's like it's like taking um, it's like taking pieces of myself and putting it in a collage. You know, I'm really excited about it. I think it's going to be good. What are your plans for the summer? Well, first of all, your recital sounds amazing. I love that. You know that... Um me as a Yakima person, I love playing the music of Native American composers, and um, maybe we should distinguish that when you say Indian, you mean India. India, yeah. Yes, because it can get confusing between us, and uh, in fact, the the first time I brought you to a powwow, uh, I said, wrong kind of Indian. <laughs> By the way, I um, I did a class this week on the music of underrepresented composers for my Music Capriche class. And I included Jared Tate and A Tribe Called Red. And that is all thanks to you. I wouldn't have known about those groups um, without you. Awesome. I love it. Well, my summer plans, I can't decide, you know, if uh, people will envy me or pity me when they hear. <laughs> um, but I had some things I was kind of um, shooting for travel-wise and whatnot that unfortunately ended up falling through. And I was talking to my husband, and I was like, you know, summer is a time where we don't have to balance teaching schedules and students and all that type of thing as much. And so I really like to take advantage of it as a time to focus um, intensely and ideally have a project or, or a goal. And with these things falling through, I'm kind of worried that I'm going to be in free fall and I, I want to really be focused, but I'm not quite sure what to focus on that's not going to be general and that is going to really inspire me to take advantage of the time. And he said, well, is there a piece that you've always wanted to learn that, you know, kind of takes more time than the average work? And I was like, no, not really. And then I thought about it for like five more seconds and I went, yes, the Berio Sequenza for bassoon. And he was like, you should learn that. And I was like, I should, because I've always wanted to learn it. And I've always said, you know, some summer when I have nothing to do, I'll lock myself in a practice room and I'll learn the Berio Sequenza. Wow. Uh, so my plan for the summer is to um, embark upon learning the Berio Sequenza. And in fact, I've painted myself into a little bit of a corner because I have scheduled my faculty recital for um, late January, early February. And here at Southeast, we do it as a concert series so people can subscribe to or whatnot. And so we need titles. And they said, okay, Jackie, what are you going to do as the title to advertise for your faculty recital? And I said, how about Sequenza 12? And so <laughs> they're God. selling tickets with the title as Sequenza 12. So i got to get it done. I'm hoping <laughs> nine months will be enough. You cannot um, let these people down. I, exactly. Uh, so 
I'll buy the Pascal Galois book and the score and learn to circular breathe. And uh, that is my goal for the summer. Uh, So, yeah, and I might make a couple of videos or a couple of blog posts or something chronicling my experience. Who knows? Or maybe I'll just sit in a corner and cry for the entire summer. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. But, yeah, so we'll see updates on Sequenza Summer. Let me know if you need a friend. Uh, but we have some kind of cool stuff going on with the podcast over the summer. Why don't you tell the listeners what we've got planned for them extra goodies over the summer? Big plans. We are starting a series of bonus episode called Mavericks in which we are going to talk to um, double read players from all over the United States who are doing interesting off the beaten path kind of things that is outside the realm of college teaching, and orchestral playing. And I'm really excited to announce that our first um, feature of Mavericks is uh, the one and only Lacolian Washington, who, well, I guess you would be a better person to introduce Lacolian since you play the bassoon. Yeah, he's going to talk to us about um, diversity in the arts and his work with the Prism Ensemble in the Memphis area and that type of thing, which I'm really excited about. Um, you know, I've never really forgotten in Erin Hannigan's interview when she says that um, her measure of success is that you are able to make a living with, in her case, the oboe, right? Um, and a lot of times we equate that to a life in academia or a life in a symphony orchestra, and that's your full-time job. And for some of the people that we're going to be interviewing in this series, that is true. You know, they they do have teaching jobs or they do play in orchestras, but um, they're doing innovative things in addition to uh, those positions they have. And then we're also going to be interviewing some people who operate completely outside those realms or have decidedly left those realms uh, in order to pursue a different path. And as we're looking at an increasingly um, diverse field that needs more things from us and benefits from creativity, we want to, you know, allow our listeners to be inspired by and hopefully get some cool creative ideas from these people and start their own creative projects. Absolutely. Yeah, we're really excited about this. Um, It's just going to be the interviews, so they should be shorter episodes. Um, And, yeah, it's going to be a continuous product. I hope we get to bring a lot of different perspectives to all of you. All right. Well, my shout-out this week is a book called Grit, The Power of Passion and Perseverance by Angela Duckworth. And um, like you just mentioned um, regarding our Maverick series about needing to look outside the box and be creative in order to have a career doing what we do, um, Angela Duckworth explores um, the special blend of passion and perseverance that she calls grit and how, you know, the people who succeed aren't necessarily, you know, when you think of the most talented people you've ever known, it may or may not include those people because grit is something extra and really special. And she talks about um, examples of people who have it. Um, You can take a quiz to see how much grit you have and uh, ways that you can develop 
grit and um, incorporate it more into your daily life, including, you know, your relationships, not just your career, but, you know, all parts of life. It's really good. I enjoy it a lot. Awesome. I'll have to check that out. My shout out is also a book. My book is Quiet by Susan Cain, The Power of Introverts in a World That Can't Stop Talking. And this is a really popular book. I wouldn't be surprised if a lot of our listeners have encountered it already. Um, but I originally looked into this book kind of as just a um, place to feel understood, you know, as a more introverted person. Um I anticipated feeling very justified in all of my feelings and behavior and um, didn't expect a lot more out of it. But I think it's a really good book for anyone. Well, I think for people, period, but especially teachers. I was surprised at how the book um, not only made me as an introvert feel understood within its pages, but also helped me understand um, different types of personality traits, people who are more introverted than myself, people who are extroverted, people who are very extroverted. And for um, us as teachers, I think it is really important that we understand different personality types and how people learn, um, how people value things, their currency, um, what their comfort zone is, how to gauge that, how to um, push them outside of it in a nourishing way. Um, and how much is maybe too much and how to gauge those things. And I got so much more from this book than I was anticipating. And especially if you are a teacher of any age or just the collaborative nature of music, um, I can't imagine someone reading this book, introvert or extrovert, and not getting a lot out of it in terms of interaction. And I was even reading it going, oh, that exercise I do. I could reconceive that to maybe have it work better for more types of people and that, that type of thing. So I found it really valuable. That's awesome. Right out of the box, gender read knives are the sharpest read knives on the market. Each original gender read knife is handcrafted using traditional Asian knife making techniques. Japanese steel is first forged into shape, hollow ground, and then hardened to Rockwell 5860, making the edge on the blade very strong yet durable. Each blade is then polished and hand sharpened to perfection using shaped in professional sharpening stones up to 8000 grit. Genda even personalizes your reed knife before sending it. You can choose a right-handed, left-handed, or straight burr from their drop-down menu and easy-to-use website. Genda has also announced new products for April of 2017, including the Genda Reed Tool Roll, a high-quality leather tool storage roll, including three large and three small sleeves, and one covered pouch to store your reed-making knives and tools. They also offer Genda Leather Reed Knife Sheaths and a Genda Cutting Block. Visit GendaIndustries.com today. The Southern Oboe Intensive provides a distinctive opportunity for oboists to spend five days immersed in world-class instruction. The Intensive draws students from middle school through college graduates from throughout the United States. During the Intensive, students at all levels are coached by James Sullivan of the Alabama Symphony, Russ DeLuna of the San Francisco Symphony, and Phil Ross of the St. Louis Symphony. Not only are these gentlemen exceptional oboists, but each brings extraordinary and unique experience and perspective to share with the participants. 
An additional one-of-a-kind benefit of the intensive is a recital performed by Mr. Sullivan, Mr. DeLuna, and Mr. Ross. Students will be instantly inspired by the level of artistry, collegialism, and joy evoked when these three superb musicians collaborate. Visit southernoboeintensive.com for more information and to register. Complete registration before May 1st and receive a free read specially made by Russ, James, or Phil, plus a six-read oboe read case. That's southernoboeintensive.com. So our interview for this episode is Sue Heineman, principal bassoon of the National Symphony Orchestra. And I don't know about you, Galit, but I found this interview to be so inspiring and really helpful and beneficial in terms of how I think about things and how I approach practicing and whatnot. Yeah, this interview was so good. And I I loved the stuff that she talks Like, she really addresses imposter syndrome. Mm-hmm. Um and she she talks about auditioning and like really good audition tips that made me want to go take an audition. Oh, absolutely! After having this interview, um, I assigned my students who are prepping for you know juries some of the things that she talks about in here with the flashcards and the um, how to. Uh, assess your own preparation. And so I have every confidence that our listeners will get so much out of this interview. Without any further ado, here's Sue Heineman. I am so pleased to welcome Sue Heineman to the podcast. Sue, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for inviting me. Um, I would love to start by asking you about your training and educational journey and how you got to where you are today. Okay. So, yeah, I... um I started playing bassoon relatively young. I was actually 10 years old when I started, which I think is pretty young for a bassoonist. And um, I had been playing piano for a few years before that. I'm the youngest of three kids, so all of us had piano lessons. And um, I don't come from a musical family specifically. Like, neither my parents were musicians, but my dad really liked classical music, and that was what was playing on the radio and in the house and the car. Um, So we took piano lessons, and then we all sequentially took up orchestral instruments and my first choice was actually cello and can you hear my dog shaking um i started i wanted to play the cello actually but it was just sort of random like my sister played violin so i wanted something different and the school didn't have any cellos so they said how about this nice viola and i said whatever i didn't care and they handed me this little tiny viola which was actually a violin with I still don't know if it was viola strings or just like they just tuned it really slack. But I played that for a few months and I just wasn't really into it for whatever reason. Um, and I definitely remember the string teacher who would come into the school every week was this grumpy old man and was really mean and insulting and told me my brain was like a noodle. And I didn't like him. So I thought, OK, I'm done with string instruments. How about a wind instrument? And I knew enough to know that I didn't want to play flute. That just seemed girly or something I don't know that just wasn't me but any of the other wins would have been fine and so the teacher thought let's give her the bassoon and that turned out to be really cool because within a week I was playing in the orchestra and our first my first piece in the orchestra was this little abridged version of Beethoven's fifth and I got to have my independent line and so I was just in love with orchestra from that point on just somehow you know, even though I had one line, it was more interesting to me than what I was doing on piano because I 
I just like the sound of all the strings. And I'd been to so many concerts by that point because my dad would take us to hear the Philadelphia Orchestra. So um, I was playing bassoon and I was really excited. I remember my first day carrying it home and I had my reed in my mouth because I thought, you know, you got to keep it wet. I was taking the subway home with my <laughs> in my mouth, carrying this giant case and hoping that somebody would ask me, like, what's that fascinating thing you're carrying? Um, and then um, I got private lessons the next year because the school music teacher, he was a clarinetist, and his knowledge on bassoon was limited. Um, my first bassoon teacher was Ferdinand Del Negro, who is the guy that's under that enormous contrabassoon in the original Fantasia. So he was in his 80s at the time, and I studied with him for maybe four years, and I swear every year on his birthday he told me he had turned 83. <laughs> <laughs> These that I have, and I mean, he was a really sweet older guy, but he wasn't uh, really um, demanding as a teacher, is what I recall. And at one point, my high school um, orchestra conductor suggested that I might want to give um, this other teacher a call, and her name was Shirley Curtis. And I never heard of her. I knew she was not connected to the Curtis Institute, but that's all I knew about her. And so I called her up, and um, I was... Um, babysitting at the time and I had this glass of something I was drinking a glass of something with ice in it and I remember calling her out and before I could even get out that my name was Susan and I wanted to take lessons with her she interrupted me and she's like so do you have ice in your mouth do you have any idea what that sounds like on the telephone <laughs> and I was so horrified I was like oh my god she hates me already and um and it's funny because up until that point I was always Susan and then it's like from that phone call on I've been Sue. Like she is like this rebirth or something, restart everything with her. And she was just an amazing teacher um, for me. And, um, you know, she was Judy LeClaire's teacher. So around the time I started studying with her was around the time Judy was winning the New York Phil audition. So, you know, it's like I just really jumped into this whole more current, you know, set of the bassoon world. Shirley had studied with Saul Schoenbach, um, not at Curtis, but at I'm not even sure where. I can't remember. Um, so, and her Shirley's husband uh, was a violist in the Philadelphia Orchestra. So it was just I was just immersed in this world from then on, and um, got very serious because she was tough. I mean, the first time I played for her, she asked me what I thought my strengths and weaknesses were, and you know, I said I was thought I had pretty good technique, and I knew I could tongue pretty fast, but like I thought maybe my tone wasn't so good. And she's like, Sue. So, your tone is fine, but your intonation surely is a lot to be desired. And then she told me that she was going to be putting me in this wind quintet. Um, she coached all these quintets um, for many years at the Settlement Music School, this you know, enormous quintet program. And um, she put me in a quintet with some seniors just because all of her bassoonists had graduated. And, and she let me know right away that, you know, I was not at their level. and I was going to have to work my butt off to keep up with them. So, you know, it was set right from the beginning going to have to work pretty hard for her. Um, but, you know, that was what I needed. I, you know, having a, a demanding teacher who would just lay it on the line, tell it like, like it was, was, was great for me. And um, I did, you know, I ended up getting a lot of experience in high school um, because I played in the youth orchestra and in the all city orchestra. And I went to summer festivals. I went to Eastern music festival three years when I was in high school, I think maybe back then, the standard might have been a little bit lower because there were a lot of high school kids then. Um, now it seems like it's more college. I'm not sure. Um, 
But I had played tons of repertoire by the time I got to college, which was Eastman. Um, there was never really any question about where I was going to go because that's where Shirley Curtis sent her students. They all went to Eastman. So I studied with Van Heusen for four years. And um, after that, I had a Fulbright to um, Salzburg where I studied with Milan Turkovich. And, and then I came back and got my master's at Juilliard. And I stayed there for several years freelancing after I finished school. Um, I was really lucky to win um, principal bassoon in New Haven Symphony um, during my third year. I actually stayed at one extra year at Juilliard for a sort of artist diploma kind of a thing because they needed bassoonists and they offered me a free ride for a third year. So I was like, all right, I'll hang out. And, um, you know, I mean, I remember that was a, it's a really hard time when you're getting out of school. I mean, this kind of gets into some of your other questions about um, directions of careers. But I remember really strongly like that a lot of people were like, okay, now I'm out of school. What do I do? And I have to start paying back my loans and paying rent and, and I don't have anywhere to play. And that was, I was so lucky to have an orchestra to kind of go right into and still have somewhere to play and concerts to work on. And, and I joined a quintet, Aspen Wind Quintet, which doesn't exist anymore, and did a bunch of freelancing. Um, and one thing I have admitted to say in any of this is that from age around 15, I was actually not even sure if I wanted to be a bassoonist at all. But I was just constantly agonizing over whether I was going to really do this. Maybe I should go to medical school. I just, it was really tough. And... Um, I just kind of every year thought, okay, let me just give this one more year to see how this is going and if I want to keep doing it. Um, and eventually I got into my late 20s, and during that time I'd been in New York, I'd been taking lots of orchestral auditions and doing very well at them. I was in a lot of finals for lots of different orchestras, San Francisco and Dallas and Milwaukee, Minnesota, Um I can't even remember. I, I listed them one time and um, Montreal. Did I mention that? That one. And then that was the kind of a doozy because that was for assistant principal. It came down to be between me and John Clauser and he got the job. And I, I just walked away from that audition the same way I walked away from every audition with this sense of relief that I didn't get it because <laughs> I, if I want a job, you know, then I would be exposed as the fraud that I was and I would be miserable and the conductor would yell at me. And, and I just, Somehow, you know, even though I had one, you know, you would think validating success after another, I just always thought, like, that's it. That, I just, man, I just, that was a fake or something. <laughs> so, um, actually, and I was pretty good friends with John Clauser. Um, I had known him for years, and he and, you know, I don't know if you guys know this, but the year I was at Tanglewood, it was me, Clauser, Danny Matsukawa. Kristen Jensen and, and Kristen Sonnenborn, who's um, from Naples Philharmonic. So, you know, I knew all of these people. And, um, you know, I remember since Clauser was going to be going to Montreal, he was asking me if I was would consider coming down and auditioning for his job in Memphis, which he was leaving principal job in Memphis. And I was like, I don't know, man, I just I'm starting to think maybe it's just time for me to do something else. And I'm sure I want to be doing this. And I remember him saying, that, you know, there's just a lot more to life than blowing in this piece of wood. <laughs> and around that same time, my sister, um, I think, said something to me, which was kind of like, you know, you can agonize all you want about changing careers. And, and if you want to do it, you should probably do it because 
she was she was in academia, so she knew like if I was going to go into graduate programs and spend another several years in school, you know, I was pushing thirty at this point, and maybe I ought to get started. But she also told me, you know, you should just know like whatever's making you unhappy in music, you're probably going to bring that to you. And, and the other thing, you're going to feel insecure and competitive and everything, and you know the other things too. So it was um, it was a really interesting and difficult time um, trying to figure out what I wanted to do. And I, I did audition for and win that Memphis job, but I decided, okay, I'll move to Memphis and I'm going to start taking classes in something else. And then I also, about a couple months later, auditioned for principal in New Mexico and I won that. And so I thought, okay, I'll go do the same thing out there. It's sunnier there and the Southwest looks really beautiful. So I moved to New Mexico and I played in, in that orchestra and, um, did that for a few years, and then um, after a while, I just started thinking, this isn't actually so bad. Like, I'm making a living doing something that I still would do for free. I mean, through all the anxiety and imposter syndrome and everything, I never stopped actually loving orchestral music. I just wondered what's going to make me happy kind of a thing. Um, So I got involved with somebody in the orchestra there, and we both ended up winning jobs in the New Zealand Symphony. And so we moved to New Zealand and um, joined the orchestra there. Um, and that relationship didn't end up working out. But by that point, now I'm in like my low 30s. And I'm, for the first time in my life, I'm thinking like, this is actually really sweet. Like I'm getting paid to live in paradise, to play amazing music. And um, so when auditions would come up in America, I would take them just because it was sort of something that I enjoyed doing, which probably sounds really weird, but I always actually liked the audition process. And you can ask me any question about that you want, like, why? Um, (laughs) But I just, I I really like the process of working towards something. and, And it's a challenge, too. I mean, you know, once you're kind of in an orchestra and you have your your established seat, it's almost like, well, now what? Because if you know you spend all these years auditioning, trying to get a better orchestra job, or trying to freelance, you know, and get up to the next rung of freelancing or whatever, you know, and then like here I was now in a job that could be a, a lifetime job, like in the New Zealand Symphony is a beautiful, amazing place to live, but um, I was still taking other auditions and. Um, flying back and forth, which is easier to then taking an audition from Albuquerque. Even though you have to fly much longer, at least you're starting at sea level, so you don't have to, you know, worry about mm. your altitude read. <laughs> um, so, you know, at any rate, I was there for a few years, and I um, got an email from Danny and asking me if I want to come and take the audition for second to soon, you know, start in the uh, semifinals for the National Symphony. And I thought, sure, you know, that's that's nice of him. And so I went there, and I won that job. It was going to be second to soon, and um, that was, like, in January. And then, meanwhile, he, you know, he'd already won Philly. So he's, like, at, and at the end of the audition, you know, he was there. I saw him because at that time he was still playing in the NSO. And, you know, he said, you know, there was a lot of talk during the audition that you're really kind of a principal player. You should seriously think about coming back for this principal audition. And I was like, ah, oh, no way, you know, but I was like, I mean, I did win this. And so why not? I'll come back and I'll take that audition too. And, and you know, that, now I started getting hungry. Like suddenly, I mean, I was 34 years old at this point. So I had had many years of 
either not being sure I wanted to be in music at all or thinking, ah, this is pretty good. Um, so it wasn't like I was hungry for big symphony job all my life. And I was like gunning for that the whole time. Um, but you know, now that I was suddenly, I could taste it a little bit again. I was like, all right, all right, I'll come back and I'll take that audition. And, um, I did not win that audition, but I was one of the final two. And the other finalist was the guy who won. It was Bill Bookman who ended up not, um, not accepting it. He wanted to stay in Chicago. So, um, I think this whole long-winded story about my audition really helped me to um, sort of transition from sort of maybe diminishing levels of imposter syndrome, but I still sort of felt like a little bit of an imposter, to somebody who could come in to this major symphony. And I was actually fairly relaxed about it because what happened was that they – since I hadn't won the audition, they didn't actually offer me the job, even though Bill had turned it down. They said, we'll give you a one-year contract on principle, and then, you know, there's going to be another audition at some point. Um, so I was just like, sweet, you know, I can play principle for a year, no pressure, you know, and I don't have to I, – I mean, and I, I seriously considered even then not taking the audition for principle bassoon for long term because I had really started to enjoy my life in New Zealand so much. So it was this um, kind of weird way of like being dropped in an orchestra without knowing if I even wanted this job and playing and then thinking, of course, I totally want this. <laughs> like, this is awesome. And and so I did end up taking the audition again and, and winning that one. And so that is how I came to the National Symphony, um, which was in 2000. So I've been there now 17 years. Um, and it's, Awesome. I mean, I have to say, I feel so lucky that I, this ended up working out like this for me because, um, you know, like I said, even even when I in the dark throes of like teen and 20s angst, I always really loved playing in the orchestra. And so like to be able to actually finally do it in a stable situation is it's amazing. It's it's like, I, you know, I tell people sometimes it's kind of like summer camp forever. Like, you <laughs> Like, I used to love to go to summer camp so much. Like, we went to Eastern Music Festival, and then, like, during the year, my friends and I would sit around and listen to Mahler and weep, you know, and think about when can we go back to EMF and play more Mahler, and, you know, because we weren't playing Mahler in my little high school orchestra. Um, so, um, yeah, yeah, and, yeah, it's pretty good. I like it. <laughs> So you talked about this, um, and I'd love to dig deeper into your um, mentioning dealing with imposter syndrome and, and performance anxiety and whatnot, but we are in April, we're approaching May, and for a lot of students, that means graduation, and you talked about this um, phenomenon where, you know, not all of us have something waiting at the end of graduation, and, and this pull between am I going to do music or am I going to find something else to do? So what would you tell those students who are maybe facing a graduation date with a big question mark at the end of it, who are like you were obviously highly capable, had made some really great educational opportunities for themselves. Like what, what would you say to that person? Yeah, it's hard. I mean, it's, I think, you know, when I think about like, what would I, say to myself at that time or what do I say to people is that you really don't know where things are going to end up. Um, and it's okay. 
not to know that. Um, you know, since I had come up from the 10th grade with Judy LeClaire as my sort of role model, and, and frankly, somebody that I was compared to by both Shirley and, and Van Hoosen, um, you know, just in terms of whatever, I mean, it's hard to figure out a way to say it doesn't sound conceited, but, you know, they would they would just say that, you know, they thought that I might be able to do something like what she had done. Um, you know, never any guarantees because there just aren't that many jobs and so many other things have to fall in place. But, um, yeah, I mean, I, I had the sense that, well, that's what you do. I guess you'd finish your bachelor's degree and then you maybe, if I don't win a job by 23, I'm a failure. So, I mean, there was a lot of, you know, sort of pressure. Um, and, um, you know, I think that um, for me, like, like I said, finding a place where I could continue to play was was a very motivating force for me. And people have different levels of things that, that can motivate them and, and what they need and what, you know, what's going to keep them practicing and um, keeping that stuff going. But, you know, I would say um, the the uncertainty of what's going to happen is, like, even the people who seem like they're amazing, it's not guaranteed, nothing's guaranteed for them either. So when you kind of think about, like, how much should I, how, sh- how am I going to figure out what I want to do? How am I going to make these choices? Like, that's the part I think you can kind of step back from a little bit and say, like, you don't have to make your major life choices right now because you, so much is, there's so many elements that are out of your control. Um, if you can, you know, obviously you need to pay your bills and expose yourself to things in life that are going to keep you engaged and practicing and somewhat positive. Um, but, um, I don't know. I had this boyfriend one time who was like from Texas and he would, he had this thing that he would all say, it was like, Kate, no, in this cute little Texan accent. And <laughs> I, I just thought, you know, I wish I could be like that. Cause you know, I came from this, you know, I, this background where, you know, you're supposed to know what you're going to do from this step to this step to this step. And I don't think that that was all that helpful. I, I guess what I'm trying to say is like, you know, you're trying to think of like, which of these thoughts are helpful and which aren't. And if, if you're, you know, if, if you can just give yourself some space to like, let, if you, if you can stay in a better headspace, you're going to be more able to take advantage of opportunities as they come. And you should definitely take advantage of you know, every opportunity that comes up and keep your eyes open for, you know, what are other people doing and what kind of opportunities can you create for yourself and that kind of thing. I mean, I'm not a kind, I always had a kind of a, um, you know, if I was going to do music, I wanted to be in an orchestra. So in that way, I'm not a good person to talk to about like what kind of alternate careers there are. Because I was always like, either I want to be in an orchestra or I'm going to, like, go to medical school or something like that. Like, you know, not that it, it's just that was where my head was at. So um, I don't know. It's I mean, just that it's, you know, it's OK if, it, if you take your time and you think like, you know, I was talking about my background. You know, I mean, on the one hand, I got a huge running start. Like I arrived freshman year at Eastman, like way ahead of the game. I was independent with making reads and I had played a ton of their orchestral repertoire and stuff. Um, but then, you know, it took me until I was 35 to land a major job. So it's not like I had a direct path, but then like my colleague, um, in the NSO, he didn't even have a bachelor's degree. Like he started college 
barely playing the bassoon. He took lessons for like two years and then he got a job and, and I mean, he's amazing. So he, he jokes about my fancy, you know, Northeast education and stuff, which he doesn't have, but it's like, you know, it's, I think it's important for people to know also that you don't, it's, you know, you don't have to have gone to the big schools. There's people coming from all over who are doing amazing things. So, and, and I knew, you know, and there's also, if you think about your colleagues who seem to be so far ahead of you, um, it's not always the people that you think who are successful, which is only kind of, um, you know, helpful in, in so far that it, it maybe can help you sort of relax and let things unfold. Um, because it's, you know, it's, I mean, you definitely have to have talent, but that's not enough. And it, there's so many other kinds of things can, that layer on top that determine whether somebody's going to be successful and or just lucky. So you mentioned that you struggled a lot with imposter syndrome, which I think many of us can relate to. And I'm wondering how you pulled yourself out of it, because you did say that eventually it stopped affecting you so much. So I'm wondering if it was um, just over time through having positive experiences and successes um, leading up to your appointment at the National Symphony that you kind of grew out of it with learning to trust yourself or was it something that you kind of had to talk yourself out of? I know I would really be interested because this is something that I struggle with also. Yeah. I mean, I would say I still struggle with this. I mean, this still occurs to me all the time. Um, And, you know, it's not a sense of like, oh, I don't think I deserve to be in this job or anything, but it's like, you know, from year to year, you like think, well, was that good enough? And, you know, I try to, um, you know, keep in close touch with my colleagues to make sure like I have reality checks, which is for um, sometimes that's actually a way to get rid of like all the negative chatter. Like I'll be so sure like that did not sound good. And then I'll go up like what um, some some of the other principal wins and I um, frequently go and listen to recordings. We've actually started this thing where, um, you know, we have Thursday, Friday, Saturday concerts. So like on Friday, we'll go and we'll listen to Thursday's concert. We'll kind of sit there. It's like a group hug. And we listen and we kind of cringe when our things are coming up and they were like, oh, that wasn't so bad. Or, oh, yeah, I think you were a little bit sharp here or black here or whatever. And I mean, that kind of thing, just being open with your colleagues is super helpful because a lot of times, I mean, you know, you're calling it's called imposter syndrome because we're not actually imposters. Right. It's something that it's like a story we're telling ourselves that, like, I shouldn't be here. I don't belong here. So if you can be open to the honest feedback I mean, you have to find people whom you can trust to be honest with you. But if, if you can, if they can, you know, if you trust them and they're saying, you know, this is good and this is not so good, then you, you know, now it's no longer fictional. Now you Mm -hmm. kind of know, okay, that, okay, maybe I can work on and that one. Um, And, and also something that I is super important is thinking about like, how are you actually listening to other people? Because I might think, you know, I or I, this is like a the collective I, I might be thinking that people are listening to me and judging or thinking this and this and this about me. And then you think, well, what am I thinking about them? Well, I don't know, because I wasn't listening to them because all I could hear was the voices in my head. So, you know, it, you start to realize that you're way more critical of yourself than you are of other people. I have this play sometimes when I listen to recordings of myself playing if I pretend that it's somebody else, it immediately gets better. 
like try it. <laughs> it's like I, I, or if I listen to a recording of somebody else, I think, oh my god, they're so great. And then I think, what if that were me? And I just record it. Now I start to hear, hear flaws, and it's the same exact recording. So it's it's obvious that I'm listening with different ears with different levels of forgiveness from other people. But actually, I want to say something else about this too, because I, like I mentioned that when I when I first came to the NSO, I um. You know, let me backtrack a little bit. One thing that I never really struggled with too terribly was performance anxiety. I think that that's, you know, I don't know why. I'm just lucky, I think, maybe. Or I remember Van Heusen telling me one time, like, after recital, he's like, you know, you play so much better in your recital than you do in your lesson. What is the deal with that? (laughs) I don't know. And, you know, I think, you know, I think sometimes our level of imposter syndrome or, um, self-consciousness or criticism makes us is a motivating factor. I mean, it can be a motivating factor to make you play better because you're like, you know, you want to show maybe can I, am I please tell me I'm good enough. How about this? Is this good enough now? And, you know, it, it can be really motivating to work really hard and to, to figure things out. And, you know, when you're in the practice room and you're thinking, okay, maybe this isn't good enough. If you can take that and do something positive with it and, figure out how to make that better so that you'll be more comfortable with it, then that's productive. And and I think this is where you have to ask yourself, like, you know, what stories am I telling myself? What thoughts am I having about this? Um, and is it productive? Like, is, 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 does it help me at all to have the this feeling about this passage? Like, if I'm feeling anxious, what if I loosen up? Does it, is it better? Is it worse? And sometimes just, like, going through exercises like that, can be like incredibly liberating. Um, you know, I mentioned when I moved to New Zealand, um, you know, it was with the idea of sewing with this person and having a family and children and everything. And then that fell apart. And so, and then an audition came up that I decided to take. And my goal with taking this audition was, you know, I mean, it can never be to win it. I don't think that, I think that's folly to go into any audition thinking I'm going to win this one, but it just, to work hard and to try to keep my head in a place where I was enjoying the process and just not beating myself up. So if I was playing, you know, this excerpt, I would think, first of all, how lucky am I that I have this music in my life in the first place? Like there were some excerpts and this was a second bassoon audition. Um, so I had to play like the Brahms violin concerto and Tom Poyser, And those always really scared me of the low controlly kinds of things. You know, and then I would just, like, listen to the music. I was like, this is so amazing. And I would just repeat that to myself, like, you are lucky that you have this in your life. And I would try to approach this stuff with that kind of an attitude. So, you know, it was, it it made my process. And I realized if I have those thoughts, I'd play just as well or better than I do when I have the thoughts that, like, that's not good enough and somebody's going to judge you. Um, I don't know if that's helpful at all like when I um when I got to the NSO like I said I I had won the second bassoon audition and I wasn't even sure that I wanted that because I had a nice I was assistant principal in New Zealand I did like playing principal more than I like playing second so I thought well I'll just take a year off from here and you know I wasn't at that point really all that interested in moving back to America quite frankly so I thought, well, I'll just take a year off from the New Zealand Symphony, go and play for a year in the NSO on second bassoon, and then I'll reassess. And then when I got to play, when they said, 
actually going to be playing principal for the year. I thought, oh, even better. And I literally, I mean, like I said, I was in my mid-30s at this point. I got some little stickers, and I put them on my read case with a smiley faces on them <laughs> to remind myself every time I open my read box to, like, take a breath and think, you know, try to enjoy this experience. What if this were the last concert you played ever? Like, what if this is the last time you ever get to play Firebird? Do you want this to be an experience where you're terrified, where you're feeling like people are judging you? Or do you want to enjoy that you're in the middle of this thing that's amazing? And and that I found that actually really helpful because, like I said, it doesn't – you start playing those games and you realize that the one thought isn't actually making you play any better. It's just protecting you. You know, it's like you want to tell yourself you're bad before somebody else tells you you're bad. Are you sure you don't moonlight as a life coach? <laughs> <laughs> Many of the years when I was a, you know, decades of therapy, um, there were many, there were years that I really thought, uh, I'm going to quit music and become a charade. But then I was like, I, I was like, well, I can imagine the imposter syndrome I'd have if I were a shrink. So after hearing about your um, string of successful auditions, I can almost hear all of our listeners screaming at me to ask you about how you prepare for an audition. Um, so leading up to the time of the actual audition, what is your practice regimen like? Okay, now I can tell you, I haven't done this for about 10 years, but... Um, <laughs> I mean, I did, my last audition was, um, and I'm going to just throw this in here in case I forget to mention it, because people often say that audition is like a young person's game, and it's a different thing, and it's harder to do it from a job, and that, that was not my experience at all. I had been in the NSO for, you know, I don't remember how many years, um, but the LA Phil had an opening for principal, and Judy calls me. She says, hey, do you want an audition for the LA Phil? And I was like, I really had not considered this. And she's like, oh, you should do it, you know, and um, I'm sure they'll invite you to the semis. You know, I think that's the way to get me to show up at an audition is to invite me to the semis. <laughs> um, so, um, and, you know, I was in my 40s then. And, it, you know, again, just like with the NSO, however many years earlier, it came down to me and Bill Bookman. And, again, he edged me out, but they actually didn't end up hiring either of them at the time. Um, but we were we were like high five and each other, yeah, forty somethings. You know, we were. <laughs> yeah. And, um, so it, you know, I mean, it's a different experience when you're coming from a job. But for me, you know, it kind of congealed. I think what I kind of you know always felt when I was taking auditions, um, which is that. The best headspace to be in is the one where you're actually playing in the orchestra because psychologically, getting back to the life coach thing, when you're playing in the orchestra, you're surrounded by people who love and support you and want you to do well, and you can hear their beautiful melodies. Like if I'm playing, you know, that, that Brahms violin concerto on second bassoon, if I'm playing that as a second bassoon excerpt, it's like this terrifying test to see how soon I'm going to cack. If I'm playing it in the orchestra, it's like I'm the bottom of this amazing carpet yeah. under, you know, a solo of the instrument that I kind of wish I had taken up but didn't. Um, so, you know, it's it's like you want to put think of yourself as you are in the orchestra. So when I'm when I'm practicing um, for something like that, or when I used to, and I, you know, obviously I did it many many times, I would sort of I had a kind of a routine for that, which was that. 
like one month before two okay two weeks before the audition i'm doing daily run-throughs of the whole list in random order like just little slips of paper you know you mix them up and you pull one out and you play it the tape recorder's going there's tape recorders back then cassettes i had a cassette player and um we would so i you know and i would play everything down in random order and then i would turn the thing off i'd go over and i'd listen and very scrupulously you know make comments um on you know if anything was out of tune if anything was out of rhythm if anything didn't sound characterful or have the kind of articulation that i wanted or whatever but in order to get at that point two weeks before i need to be able to pretty much play everything on the list by like four weeks before and start to um be um you know, maybe recording smaller groups of excerpts. Something that I used to do I found really super helpful um, was to group the excerpts according to, like, what skills they reveal about you. And and then this gets into the whole psychology of it, which is I think that it's really easy to look at an audition as some kind of test for a frowning jury, and they're looking for reasons to eliminate you, and all they want is the person who could come in and be perfect and you know, that's not a really helpful attitude to have. And I don't think it's realistic or true. I mean, they want somebody who's going to come and play in the orchestra and be their colleague and make them feel comfortable that they can make music with this person. So, you know, you need to realistically ask yourself, like, why are they asking, you know, this excerpt? And what is this excerpt? What are they going to infer about me as a musician from this excerpt? So, like, you miss a couple you know, you have a couple of tiny little response flubs, it's not a big thing. But if you have response flubs on every excerpt that shows whether you have good response, now they're, like, nervous. They don't want to play with you because you're going to mess up their you know, their big moment. I remember calling up um, Bert Hara after that same Minnesota audition and asking him, because, you know, once again, I was in the finals and did not win the job. And, and actually, unfortunately, even after all my mind games, it was the Brahms Violin Concerto that he said it just the control just didn't sound quite flexible enough. And, you know, I want to I want to feel like if I'm playing a solo and I need to move a little earlier later, that the second bassoon is going to be right there with me. And, you know, I thought, all right, that's, you know, fair enough. You know, it's like I think sometimes people have this feeling like, you know, why do I have to be able to nail marriage of Figaro? Well, it's because we can tell a lot about your playing from Marriage of Figaro. So in your life, when you're playing, you know, when you're playing your lessons, when you're playing whatever you're playing in your school ensemble or your quintets, you know, you want to look for the aspects of your playing that you feel like hang you up in auditions. Like if you feel like, you know, I'm pretty good at this, but maybe not so good at, at that other thing. Look for opportunities for that other thing to work on those in other situations. Cause, you know, you know, we can get like really locked into like this excerpt and really tight about that, but it's not really that excerpt. It's like maybe my, I don't feel comfortable with my response there, or I don't feel comfortable that my articulation in the mid register, it's clean enough. It cracks too often or, you know, whatever. Um, so do, do you know what I mean? Like if you're, when I would, I was playing in New Haven, so I was out of, right out of Juilliard, and you know, and I would play, and I, you know, I, I felt you know comfortable in that job. But if I started to think, well, what if I'm playing this piece and it's on the audition for you know my next major audition, is it good enough for that? And why not? You know, and what kind of thing about my playing 
do I feel like maybe I need to, to raise it up a level? So you want to like, you know, in your life, not just as preparing for auditions, kind of sort of keep it, keep track of like which elements of playing seem to hang you up in auditions. Um, another thing that is really important, you know, not just preparing auditions, but in general is like getting really honest feedback from other people, like I said, and like a, which I continue to do to this day. So playing your stuff through for a critical, like an audience that scares you, somebody who intimidates you um, or who, because you need to practice being nervous and you need to practice being realistic about what you can do on a given day. Um, you know, we've all had this thing. It's like, well, you, I've nailed this a few times. So like, yeah, now I can do it. But like, can you nail it nine out of 10 times? And, and you're not thinking like nail it because I need to be perfect because they want a computer. No, it's because when you go and hear a major symphony orchestra, they usually kind of nail it. You know, it's it's like they want somebody who's going to be clean and ex- and also expressive. So it's um, I, I used to do this thing. So you know, backtracking back to my little calendar thing. Um, you know, I might I, you know after a certain group of I might have like you know these are my sort of expressive balls to the wall like here's my personality on excerpts and then then here's my like fast tonguing excerpts and then here's my you know this and that work on those together in sync so that I can keep those skills going but then maybe take a a handful of um of those excerpts and I would make my little flashcards and I would pick them up and I'll play it and if I hit it the way I wanted to go like on audition day I write y for yes on the card and if I didn't, I'd write no, N. And then I just kind of throw it back in the mix. And I just kind of do this for a while just to get a sense of, like, how consistent am I really? Um, because you you can really kind of trick yourself into thinking you're more consistent than you are. <laughs> and, you know, so you, you want to you know that these things are going to be there at your beck and call. But while you're working on nailing them and perfecting things and everything, you also want to make sure that there are times in your preparation when you are going for expression and personality and beauty and let kind of let go of that part where I'm like, oh my gosh, this needs to be in tune. Because if you're playing really tight and careful and just trying to nail everything, you're probably not putting your personality and your, your soul into it. Um, you know, and I remember, like, after a while, it's like, yeah, I can play Shahrazad, whatever, that I can do. And I would be, like, only working on the technical things. And then I'd record myself, and I'd listen, and i think, gosh, Shahrazad sounds completely boring. You know, and the thing is, you need to over-prepare the expression, too. Because you're going to get out there onto a stage, which may be hot or it may be cold, or it may be whatever it is. The warm-up room was the opposite temperature. And, you know, in the opposite resonance, and you've been standing outside, and... Now you're on the stage and you've just screwed up Beethoven 4. And the next thing up is Scheherazade. Now, if you can play a really interesting, expressive Scheherazade, there's a good chance that they'll say, we want to hear that person again, even though they screwed up Beethoven 4. But if you're, like, now super tight because you messed something else up and you don't have it, you know, somewhere in there to kind of dig deep and pull out and say, okay, I am still performing. This is a performance. Um, somebody once actually told me before an audition, don't play an audition, play a recital. And I thought that was a cool thing to say mm-hmm. because, you know, you, you know, I know I, you know, I spent a lot more time on the other side of the screen and it is honestly, I think I'd rather be auditioning than be on the jury 
it's so stressful. <laughs> it's like <laughs> a huge responsibility. I feel so much empathy for the people auditioning. And, you know, here's another thing that people don't seem to know who are auditioning is that there's not really a they behind the screen. It's a group of individuals, you know, that it's not, there audition committees tend to, you know, fluctuate, you know, it's, it's so, I mean, every orchestra probably has their own sort of makeup, like for like, you know, obviously if it's a bassoon audition, all the rest of the bassoonists are going to be there and like the principal wins, but then you have scattered um, representatives from the rest of the, from the orchestra. And, you know, the next time around, it might be a different scattered people from, from the rest of the orchestra. And, um, you know, even though we all play in the same orchestra and have kind of the same idea of what's good, you know, you'd be amazed at the differences of opinions and reactions that, that people have. And if you ask for comments, you will find that out very clearly because, you know, I always used to get comments after these auditions since I was in the finals, and I usually knew somebody who knew somebody. And, yeah, I'd literally get, like, one person saying, you um, were probably the best bassoonist today, but you – didn't play with enough personality and then somebody else in the same committee, you really just played with too much personality and that didn't sound like you would fit in our section. <laughs> or I, or your bartered bride. I've never heard tonguing like that. That was so amazing. And from somebody else in the same section, same instrument, your bartered bride was a mess. <laughs> what? what do I do with that? <laughs> I mean, it, it, that's only helpful in that it kind of goes into that category of things out of your control. You know, whatever version of that serenity prayer works for you, you know, can't know is mine. Um, <laughs> it, so it's like, you know, you, you, you want to get as much good, good feedback from people and improve as much as you can and really, you know, work these excerpts up to the place where they sound like they would make sense in the context of actual orchestra. If you've never played the piece before, make sure you listen to a million recordings of it. Play it along with the recording. Visualize yourself with the other people around you so that it's not just, you know, a trick, like to see if I can get through this. You need to show that you, you need to like if you're playing Tchaikovsky 4 and you want to, okay, oh, I got a story. Yay. So in the midst of the depths of my depressions about what am I going to do playing music here, I was in, in Memphis Symphony for my very brief stint there. And I was freaking out because I was like, ah, oh, that should have never left New York. I want to go back there, but maybe I should stay here. But maybe I should go to New Mexico because I won that job. I just had too many options, and none of them felt right because I was just absolutely paralyzed emotionally to, like, figure out what I wanted to do with my life. And on the last performance of Tchaikovsky 4, I just decided, uh, again, somehow I'm going to enjoy this. I'm going to just put my emotions into this piece. And um, I got to that solo in the in the second movement in the end. And then afterwards, one of the vi random violinists I'd never met, she came up to me. She said, oh, my God, that was so beautiful. You made me cry. <laughs> and I was so touched because I was like, you know, and all this makes it like, okay, this is worth it somehow. Like this is, I mean, I, I, one of your people, I think it was Erin during her, her was saying that, you know, there's always somebody in the audience who has, who's had a terrible day who needs this. 
and you're you're giving them something by being on the stage and, and presenting this music and you know that's kind of how how that felt to me it just felt like I was just so happy for her somehow that she had managed to benefit from you know my deep depths of neurosis so that I was like well, that is fantastic and I'm glad you had that experience um, but if you can do that in an audition you know it's like because everybody's going to be able to play Tchaikovsky 4 but if you can play it in a way that might make them cry you win or you don't I can't say that there's no guarantees and frankly there's not a job <laughs> and no matter how great you are I'm really 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 sorry but the reality is there are more fantastic people than there are orchestra jobs. <laughs> so, and, um, you know, but in that, you know, as you know, I mean, as you guys know, you've proven that you, you don't have to have an orchestra job to have a, you know, a cool career in music. Um, but I think that having these kinds of thoughts about it, that it's, there is not, there's not a clear winner. You know, this is a subjective thing. And so all you can do is, you know, figure out how you want to play it, do your best to get to that level, be forgiving about the things that you haven't quite figured out yet and be prepared for that too. So like be prepared. Like, I mean, ideally we want to have every excerpt be the one that we hope that they ask because we're so great at that and we love to play it. That, that would be an ideal. And as you're preparing, it's probably good to kind of ask yourself, what would it take for me to feel that way about this excerpt? You know, which excerpts am I really scared of? How am I going to make friends with this? How am I going to make, get to that feeling where I'm grateful that this piece exists in my life and I get to participate in it and I can, you know, play it. Um, and then like what I was saying before, look for opportunities in other things that you're playing to, to address those issues of, of your actual bassoon playing. Like if like Tchaikovsky six, there's a million opportunities to work on low response in, in other pieces or in the 2d passages in the orchestra. Play some quiet long tones then. Nobody will know. <laughs> you, know you, can, um, you, know, you know what I mean? It's like not just random notes or anything, but like I use I use orchestra time a lot to kind of, you know, we all do this. If we have some solo coming up, you might test something, you know, 20 bars before. Like, um, you know, or even, even psychologically, like, okay, I know this is coming up, so let me just like make sure my read feels right in that place. And you might play, if you have a fortissimo D flat, you might play a pianissimo D flat in the same place to kind of get yourself, you know, kind of in the mood for that. I, I think we all do that. Anyway, I do that. Um, so, um, yeah, so, um, but also, you know, when you're taking these auditions, it's it's all a process. I mean, you know, you might win this one, and you might not, but you, you want it after every audition. You know, you, there's life after this one. So, like, let's say I haven't quite figured out how to, you know, get everything to the level you wanted to. You, you want your goal in the audition to be like to play as well as you can for that time in your life with the, those reads and that this preparation and this ability to tongue or whatever, and know that there is life after this audition. And you're gonna you're gonna keep working on that. You know, it might take a few auditions to get to the point where you can comfortably lay down a Figaro or a Tchaikovsky six or whatever. I mean, you might never get there where you're actually comfortable, but <laughs> I'm saying it's like. Um, if, if you go in with this some kind of impression that you have to go in and be perfect and you're just not there yet, chances are you're going to play much worse than you are because you're putting way too much pressure on yourself. Like you want to be realistic about where you are and perform, you know, 
with love <laughs> at that level, which is, you know, it's often, you know, very high. You know, I mean, I'm not talking about people who just absolutely have no chance, you know, or aren't, just shouldn't be auditioning because they're, they're not at that level yet. But, you know, I'm thinking like we play um, excerpts and we're playing them for somebody. I'm going to play a run through. And, oh, uh, well, yeah, this read isn't really chronic so great. So, you know, and, you, and you're sort of making excuses in your head, like, because you know in your mind at some point you played a great read. I mean, in reality, you played some read at some point that played a beautiful read of spring. Um, and you, you might have that in mind that that's what's going to happen at the audition. But if that's not what's happening consistently in your run throughs, you know, then you have to accept that, do your best. But at a certain point, accept, OK, this is where I am now. And so that when you go you know, to the audition and exactly what happened in the rehearsal room happens on stage that you don't like freak out and, and fold. Um, when I was taking auditions, I used to watch, um, a lot of figure skating. <laughs> and I remember that like the people who would like just wipe out like on their first jump mm-hmm. and then get up and just like, you know, hang their head and like barely finish their routine. Like it was so uncomfortable to watch. And then occasionally you get somebody who would just wipe out and then get up and it was just like, oh, well, hell with that. And then they would just perform their asses off and they would be amazing. And they would, you know, it's like now they're free and they, all the pressure was lifted. And then they sometimes those people win because, you know, and you want to be that person. You want to be the person who, like, no matter what you did. I mean, that's what you would do in a performance, hopefully, you know, doing in the audition what you would do in a performance, which is that, OK, that's over. Let's move on. Let's make this nice, and let's be in this moment. Sue, thank you so, so much for joining us on Double Read Dish. This was a wonderful experience talking to you and um, allowing us to be in your living room with your with your wonderful-sounding dog. I think she heard you say that because she just jumped up. Oh. <laughs> where can our listeners find you on the Internet? Well, um, I don't have a web page. I used to think that I would make one and that I just didn't. Um, they, I mean, if they want to look at a couple of pictures of me, they can, the Kennedy Center has all the um, individual um, people and there's a couple of 10 to 15 year old videos of me talking about read making in a tank top. I have a very limited presence on YouTube, including um, an excerpt from something I played at the IDRS conference a few years ago, which um, somebody turned into one of those goat videos, like the goat screams in the middle of my triathlon. <laughs> it's actually pretty awesome, and it has a lot more views than than the original. Um, <laughs> so that's on there. Um, but, yeah, I, um, I haven't made a CD. I started one about six years ago, which I haven't bothered to edit. And my, my biggest presence, um, other than animal videos on Facebook is that I, um, I like to do bike touring and I've written a whole bunch of blogs on, of my trips. Um, if people are interested in that at all, um, if you go to crazyguyonabike.com and search my name, um, you can read about my, what I do when I'm not playing the bassoon, which is like travel in foreign countries on my bicycle. Which I highly recommend. You guys didn't ask about self-care or work-life balance, but I've got that down. I am away from the bassoon more than I'm with it, and it's it's all good.
hope you guys enjoyed that interview as much as we did. Be sure to follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. We also have our website where you can listen or our YouTube channel where you can also listen if you prefer to do it that way. We would always love if you rate us on iTunes and don't forget to subscribe. And be on the lookout for this Mavericks series should be out very soon. Our next episode, episode 12, features an amazing oboe guest. We are very happy to um, talk to Eugene Isotop for episode 12, so tune in for that.